This evening we're continuing our overview of Paul's second letter to the church which was located in the city of Corinth. And here in our text tonight, we find Paul, he's continuing to encourage the Christians in Corinth to become benevolent believers who faithfully use their finances to support the work of the ministry. But now before we dig into our text tonight, it'll help you to remember that a benevolent believer, this is a Christian who is happy to help others through gracious gifts of charity. As we saw in our text last week, Paul was quick to encourage every Christian there in Corinth to remember that our God is a benevolent God. Our God is a benevolent God. He is a gracious God, and he's given charity to those who don't deserve it like us. Therefore, it only stands to reason that the Christian who is walking by faith in God will also become a benevolent believer, much like our God is a benevolent God. And with this as our goal, let's turn our attention now to this challenging chapter. If you would look with me there at 2 Corinthians chapter 9, we'll begin reading at verse 1. Here Paul declares, Now concerning the ministering to the saints, it is superfluous for me to write to you, for I know your willingness, about which I boast of you, to the Macedonians, that Achaia was ready a year ago, and your zeal has stirred up the majority. Yet I have sent the brethren, lest our boasting of you should be in vain in this respect, that, as I said, you may be ready. Lest if some Macedonians come with me and find you unprepared, we, not to mention you, should be ashamed of this confident boasting. Therefore I thought it necessary to exhort the brethren to go to you ahead of time and prepare your generous gift beforehand, which you had previously promised that it may be ready as a matter of generosity and not as a grudging obligation. Now here in the opening verses of this chapter, we find Paul, he's continuing to encourage the Christians there at the church in Corinth to care for the Christians at the church in Jerusalem by gathering up a gift of benevolence, which would then be sent to those who were destitute of their daily needs there in the Holy Land. And as I pointed out in our study last week, as, as Paul began uh, what, what he's talking about here, uh, this offering that he is encouraging the Christians there in Corinth to gather together, it presents us with some foundational principles for what we call grace giving. Now, one reason for what we call this grace giving is based on the fact that the born-again believer is no longer under the rules and the regulations of the law. No, instead, those who have placed their faith in the finished work of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ were now walking in the grace of God. Therefore, rather than giving because we have to, we can now give because we love to. Rather than giving out of obligation, now we give because we've been filled with the grace of God, which gives us this passion to give. It's for this reason that Paul referred to this offering back in chapter 8 as a gift of grace. As a matter of fact, he actually used the Greek word grace three times when referring to this financial gift that he was encouraging the Corinthian Christians to collect. And now here we are in chapter 9. He's continuing to talk about the gathering together of this gift. And we now find Paul, he's continuing to help the Christians in Corinth to understand that the Christian who is walking in the grace of God is going to become a benevolent believer who gives from a heart that's filled with God's grace. In order to further grasp the difference between the grace giving of the New Testament and the uh, tithe of the Old Testament, I want to look again there at verse 5. 
Notice with me again at 2 Corinthians 9, verse 5, where Paul declares, I thought it necessary to exhort the brethren to go to you ahead of time and prepare your generous gift beforehand, which you had previously promised that it may be ready as a matter of generosity and not as a grudging obligation. Now, here in this verse we find Paul, he's describing this offering as a generous gift. And uh, we have to admit that any gift is generous because, I mean, a gift is something that isn't really deserved. And so this offering is a generous gift. And and he presented the people there in Corinth with a contrast between a gift which is given out of generosity and an obligatory gift which is given grudgingly. For the sake of clarity, it will help you to know that the words grudging obligation, they were translated from one Greek word which is oftentimes rendered covetousness. Isn't that interesting? This concept of giving out of grudging obligation is based on the word covetousness. Simply put, it's a word that speaks of the greedy desire to have more. That's what covetousness is. And the person who gives out of a grudging obligation really isn't giving with the right heart because they really want what they're giving. They're covetous. They, they want what they're giving away, which means they give, they've given it to somebody else, so therefore it belongs to some, someone else now, but they still want it back, so therefore they're coveting something that belongs to someone else. This word speaks of the greedy desire to have more, and what this means is that the Christian who even refuses to give with generosity is guilty of committing the sin of covetousness, which according to Paul is nothing more than idolatry. Think about that for a moment. Covetousness is idolatry because it's a love of money and it's a desire that puts money above God. And so this this idea of giving out of a grudging obligation, well, it stems from our own sinful covetousness. Conversely, the the benevolent believer uh, is a Christian who gives with generosity. And just to be clear, the Greek word translated generosity, uh, it's also a word that was used when describing a fertile soil which continues to bear much fruit. If you have this land with this fertile soil and it's just constantly producing more and more and more fruit, that's a generous plot of land. It's generous because it continues producing fruit. Therefore, the benevolent believer who gives with this sort of generosity, well, they're like a rich, fertile soil which is producing the fruits of financial blessings in the lives of those who have the greater need. Now, in light of this contrast between those who give with generosity and and those who give out of a a grudging uh, obligation, this this contrast presents us with this concept uh, of becoming the Christian who is generous and not covetous. The covetous Christian withholds the fruits of financial blessings because they have a greedy desire for more. They have a greedy desire to keep what they have for themselves. They have a greedy desire to hold on to the money that they've acquired. Conversely, the benevolent believer is quick to recognize that they're just the soil that God is using to produce financial fruits for those that he wants to bless. It's with this mindset that the benevolent believer becomes a cheerful giver as we recognize that we're just the soil that God is using to grow the fruits of financial blessings for others. This is precisely the point that Paul goes on to make here in our text tonight. And if you would look with me there beginning at verse 6. Here Paul continues to help us to understand the importance of becoming a generous Christian by declaring, This I say, 
He who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. Here in these verses we find Paul, he's continuing to help his audience to understand the blessings which come upon the benevolent believer who chooses to support the saints of God with the fruits of financial gifts. And he did this by reminding them about the way in which a farmer receives a return on the seeds that he goes out to sow. Think about it like this. The farmer who sows their seeds sparingly, the farmer who goes out and just, you know, I'll plant, you know, one seed over here and then let me go, you know, five feet over to this row and I'll put another seed over here. And, you know, they're not going to reap a, a huge return. The land that they have could acquire so much more, that, that, that land could produce so much more fruit if they would just simply sow the seed without worrying about where the seed lands. And so the farmer who sows sparingly, well, they're going to turn around and reap a small amount of fruit. But the farmer who goes out and sows bountifully, and they're just scattering their seed wherever it may land, well, this farmer can, can bet that they're going to reap a bountiful reward of the fruit that grows in the soil. The farmer who is sowing their seed, well, they have to, we have to think about how this applies to the Christian who is giving. The Christian who gives sparingly will end up bearing less fruit in their lives. The, the Christian who gives sparingly will end up bearing less fruit than the benevolent believer who is giving bountifully to the work of the Lord. And the reason why is due to the fact that the Lord knows that he can trust the benevolent believer to use the money that they receive to bless others. Think about it. If you were going to give money to someone that you knew was going to hoard that money and use it for their own pleasure, and, and, and that's all they could think about it, and then you knew another person who wanted to take that money and try to multiply it and use it to bless others, who would you be more uh, you know, likely to give your money to? And, of course, the person who's ready to pass the blessings on, those who are ready to pay it forward. And I believe that's the Lord's mindset here is that the, the ones that he knows uh, will take the money that he commits into their hands and use it to bless others. I think that he's ready to give them the responsibility of managing that money. And with that being the case, Paul encouraged every Christian to become benevolent believers. And not because we have to become benevolent believers, but because we want to be used by God to bring blessings to others. As a matter of fact, if you would look with me again there at verse 7, here Paul instructed the Christians to give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. Now, this is the second time that Paul pointed out that grace giving is not based on the legalism of law. In order to prove my point, I want to back up. I want to look at something that Paul wrote in our text last week. If you would look with me there at 2 Corinthians chapter 8, we'll begin reading at verse 7. There again, Paul declares, But as you abound in everything, in faith and speech and knowledge, in all diligence and in your love for us, see that you abound in this grace also. Speaking of grace giving. I speak not by commandment, but I am testing the sincerity of your love by the diligence of others. Here in this verse, as I pointed out last week, we see that grace giving is based upon the sincerity of Christian love and not according to a commandment which has been given to the church. The Lord hasn't you know, spoken to us through Paul to command us to give our money to the church. No, instead, he's simply inviting us to abound in this grace giving 
so that the diligence of our love might be made known to others. And in support of this point, Paul is now helping us to see that grace-giving is not based on a law-based obligation. As a matter of fact, if you would, let's go back to our text, 2 Corinthians chapter 9. I want you to look with me again there at verse 7, because here Paul declares, So let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. Now, that word necessity... We've already considered the word grudging. Uh, It speaks of covetousness. But that word necessity was translated from a Greek word which speaks of that which is necessary according to the law of duty. This word necessity speaks of uh, that which is necessary according to the law of duty. And what this means is that the Christian is not obligated to give anything according to some sort of law of duty. No, instead, Paul has directed us to give according to uh, that which we've purposed in our hearts to give. And while the law of God requires those who are under the law to to give the required amount of their income, those who are walking in the grace of God have been called to give with generosity according to the desires that the Lord has put on our hearts to give. In order to further understand the difference between the giving which is required by the law and the grace giving that Paul was describing here in our text tonight, hold your place here in the book of 2 Corinthians and turn with me to Hebrews chapter 7. It's here in Hebrews 7 where we find Paul. He's writing about a very mysterious man whose name was Melchizedek. And as you make your way to Hebrews 7, it'll help you to know that there are some, like myself, who believe that this mysterious character named Melchizedek was actually a Christophany, which is simply a fancy way of saying that Melchizedek was probably a pre-incarnate manifestation of Jesus Christ. Before the Son of God took on the the, the human form there within the the womb of Mary, before all of that happened, which we call the incarnation, uh, we see several times throughout the Old Testament where the Son of God took on uh, a humanistic character or a manifestation in some sort of of human type of persona. For example, uh, the the commander of the Lord's army in the book of Joshua appears to be a Christophany, a pre-incarnate manifestation of Jesus Christ. The fourth man in the fire of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego appears to be a Christophany, which is a pre-incarnate manifestation of Jesus Christ. And I believe that Melchizedek is a Christophany, which is a pre-incarnate manifestation of the Lord Jesus Christ. With all this in mind, if you would look with me there at Hebrews chapter 7, we'll begin reading at verse 1. Here Paul tells us that this Melchizedek, uh, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being translated king of righteousness, and then also king of Salem, meaning king of peace, without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, remains a priest continually. Now consider how great this man was, to whom even the patriarch Abraham gave a tenth of the spoils. And indeed, those who are of the sons of Levi who receive the priesthood, have a commandment to receive tithes from the people according to the law. That is, from their brethren, though they have come from the loins of Abraham. But he whose genealogy is not derived from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. Now, beyond all contradiction, the lesser is blessed by the better. Here mortal men receive tithes, but there he receives them, of whom it is witnessed that he lives. Even Levi, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, so to speak, for he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. Therefore, if perfection were through the Levitical priesthood, for under it, 
the people received the law. What further need was there that another priest should rise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be called according to the order of Aaron? Now here in these verses, we learn that Abraham took the spoils of war from the slaughter of the kings and he took those spoils of war and gave a tenth or, or, or a tithe, if you will. The word tithe literally means 10%. He gave this tithe to this interesting character named Melchizedek, who was called the king of peace and the priest of the most high God. And listen, Abraham didn't present a tithe to this man because he was legally required to do so. No, instead he gave this tithe to the king of Salem because he purposed in his heart to honor this very mysterious man who was made like the son of God. And it's interesting to note that this guy had no genealogy. He, you know, we don't know who his father was. We don't know who his mother was. And, and, and you don't become a king without a genealogy. You certainly don't become a priest without belonging to a priestly genealogy, which leads me to think that this character is probably a pre-incarnate manifestation of Jesus Christ. I believe that this is what Abraham was talking about when he spoke of seeing Christ before, you know, Christ came out or what, you know, what what Paul's talking about when he spoke of Abraham seeing his day. I'm sorry, Jesus said that. So the point being then that Melchizedek received a tithe from Abraham before the law of the tithe, the tithe was given. 600 years later, after Abraham gave that tithe, to Melchizedek. Then, 600 years later, the Lord presented the law of the tithe to Moses at the top of Mount Sinai. At that point in time, the people of God were then required to give their tithes to the priests of God. And as we consider this connection between the tithe of Abraham and the tithe of the Levitical law, it's important to understand that Abraham's gift was not given because of law. No, it was given as a free will offering, as an act of worship. While the tithe of the Levitical law was a legal requirement for the people of God. Well, now, as Paul points out here in Hebrews 7, now we've returned to the same sort of ministry that, uh, that Abraham was engaging in when he gave to Melchizedek. We're no longer under the Levitical law. No, we are ministering in a, in a day and an age where one who is you know, in, in the priesthood of Melchizedek, Jesus Christ, is sitting on the throne of grace. So when we give, it's not because of the law, but rather, much like Abraham, it's a free will offering of worship. Based on this, I would argue that we've been called to become benevolent believers who, like Abraham, are excited to worship the king of peace and the priest of the most high God with free will gifts and offerings. And like Abraham, we too should give our gifts and offerings to the Lord simply because we want to and not because we're legally required to. In this way, the benevolent believer will become a cheerful giver as we begin to realize that everything we have is actually a gracious gift that has come to us from God. Now, in order to uh, explain what I mean by that, let's turn back to 2 Corinthians chapter 9. I want to begin reading at verse 8. Here Paul writes, And God is able to make all grace abound toward you, that you, always having all sufficiency in all things, may have an abundance for every good work. As it is written, he has dispersed abroad. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. Here in these verses we find Paul, he's reminding the Christians in Corinth that God is the one who provides us with everything that we have. And he's the one who's able to provide us always a sufficiency in all things. He's ready to give us an abundance for every good work. 
And what this means is that God is the one who generously provides us with everything that we need to serve him. Therefore, we can also trust that he will always provide us with everything that we need. And not only that, but listen, Paul here is assuring his audience that God will also give the benevolent believer enough to share with others. This is precisely the promise that Jesus made in Luke chapter 6, verse 38, when he declared, give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over, will it be put into your bosom? For with the same measure that you use, it will be measured back to you. Now, don't misunderstand what's being said here, because Jesus isn't saying, give so that you can get. That, that's one of the problems with the word faith movement. What they're saying is that, well, if you give, then you can be guaranteed that you're going to get more back. And that's problematic because you're giving for the wrong reasons. Jesus isn't saying give so that you can get. Jesus is simply saying give. You don't have to worry about whether it's going to come back to you or not. The Lord's going to give you more so that you can continue giving more. So just give. Give with that heart of just trusting that the Lord is going to be able to provide to us. Christian, listen, if you truly have a heart to give to others, well, then you can do so with great faith, knowing that the Lord is never going to be outgiven. You can't outgive God. Try. Put it to the test and see if you can outgive God. I guarantee that you can't. The Lord has promised to provide great benevolence and a bountiful abundance to those who simply give. And so if you truly have a heart to give to others, then give what you can. And as you do, the Lord has promised to make sure that you're able to give what you've purposed in your heart to give. This is precisely the point that Paul was making here in our text tonight when he told the Christians in Corinth that God is able to make all grace abound toward you, that you always having all sufficiency in all things. You see a little theme in there? God is able to make all grace abound toward you, that you always having all sufficiency in all things may have an abundance for every good work. I mean, that is a beautiful promise that, that we can rest in knowing that as we give according to what God has put on our hearts to give, he's always going to provide us with everything we need to continue giving what he's encouraged us to give. Trust me when I tell you that the Lord is going to provide us with everything we need always to accomplish every good work, which includes all the resources we need to graciously give to those who are in need. And listen, the benevolent believer who graciously shares what God has given us ends up causing others to worship the Lord because of the benevolence that we have extended. As a matter of fact, look with me there at 2 Corinthians chapter 9. We'll begin reading at verse 10. Here Paul goes on to declare, Now may he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food supply and multiply the seed you have sown and increase the fruits of your righteousness, while you are enriched in everything for all liberality, which causes thanksgiving through us to God. For the administration of this service not only supplies the needs of the saints, but also is abounding through many thanksgivings to God. While... Through the proof of this ministry, they glorify God for the obedience of your confession to the gospel of Christ and for your liberal sharing with them and all men. And by their prayer for you, who long for you because of the exceeding grace of God in you, thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Now here in the final verses of this chapter, we find Paul, he's helping his audience to see the connection between the grace giving of the benevolent believer and the gratitude of those who end up receiving the benefits of Christian charity. But this is our focus. I, I just want to take some time to break down and examine these verses so that we too can see this connection 
between the, the gracious gifts of benevolence and the attitude of gratitude that is in the hearts of those who receive those gifts. If you would look with me again there at verse 10, here we find Paul, he's seeking the blessings of the Lord on behalf of the Christians there in Corinth who were giving of their resources for this gift of benevolence. Here he declares, now may he who supplies seed to the sower. In other words, God is the one who is supplying the ability for them to even give these gifts. So to him, to to him who supplies the seed, he's talking to God, and bread for food, may he supply and multiply the seed you have sown and increase the fruits of your righteousness while you are enriched in everything for all liberality, which, notice, causes thanksgiving through us to God. I like the way the scholars who gave us the New Living Translation render these verses. Here's how they put it. For God is the one who provides seed for the farmer and then bread to eat. In the same way, he will provide and increase your resources and then produce a great harvest of generosity in you. Yes, you will be enriched in every way so that you can always be generous. And when we take your gifts to those who need them, they will thank God. To put it more simply, God is the one who enables us to be generous so that those who benefit from our benevolence end up giving thanks to God. Christian, when you are a benevolent believer and when you give uh, of your treasure so that others might be blessed, your gift causes them to become filled with an attitude of gratitude. And as a result, your benevolence causes them to thank God. Paul continued to elaborate on this point there in verse 12 by assuring the Christians in Corinth that the administration of this service not only supplies the needs of the saints, but also is abounding through many thanksgivings to God. From this, we can see that the church there in Corinth was not only used by God to meet the needs of the Christians there in Jerusalem, but the Lord was also using the gift of those benevolent believers to restore the hope of those Jewish saints who were praying for provision from God. I'm guessing many, if not most of us, have been in that position where we're like, I don't know how I'm going to pay this bill. I don't know how I'm going to make, you know, the, the next, you know, car payment or the, or the next, you know, rent payment. And, and we found ourselves praying that God would just provide. And, and you know what? I, I've prayed many of those prayers myself. When Brenda and I were first married, I was an intern at Calvary Chapel, Austin, Texas, and she was a college student, and, and we were both broke as could be. And there were many times when we were praying, oh, Lord, get us through this one. And and, and you know what? He never failed. He never failed to provide for us. I remember one time uh, having a desire to go on a mission trip. And I didn't have the money to do it. And next thing I know, there was just an envelope in the mail that had come that someone had just been on their heart to send me some money. Didn't know what for, but they just wrote, you know, this is something that God put on my heart to send you. I knew exactly what it was for. It enabled me to go on my first mission trip. God has always been there to provide. And though it's come down to the wire many, many times, he's never let us down, not once. He's always there to meet all of our needs. And every single time, it just makes me go, oh, thank you, God. It just fills my heart with an attitude of gratitude. I'm sure you know what I'm talking about. In those times when you were just like, I don't know how I'm going to do this. And next thing you know, God just provides. And your heart is just filled with thanksgiving to God that he sees us and recognizes our needs and is there to meet those needs. 
when the provision finally arrives, you better believe that the heart is just filled with thanksgiving. And that's exactly what was happening there in Jerusalem. As that gift of benevolence finally arrived there in Jerusalem, they were just so stoked about how the Lord had provided this gracious gracious gift for them. And not only were they joyfully expressing their gratitude to God, but they were also giving God glory for the benevolence of the Gentile believers. As a matter of fact, look with me again there at verse 13. There Paul assured his audience that it's through the proof of this ministry, the, the ministry speaking of the gift that had been sent, it's through the proof of this ministry they glorify God for the obedience of your confession to the gospel of Christ and for your liberal sharing with them and all men and by their prayer for you who long for you because of the exceeding grace of God in you. Here in these verses, we find Paul describing the way in which the poverty-stricken Christians there in Jerusalem would end up glorifying God for the gift of grace that they received from the benevolent believers there in the Gentile world. And one reason that they would glorify God is due to the fact that the benevolent blessings of that bountiful gift was evidence that the Gentiles had truly received the grace of God. That's why it's the proof of that ministry. Think about it like this. Why else would the Gentiles there in Corinth have any desire to send their hard-earned money to Christians in Jerusalem? Why would they want to do that? The only reason that makes sense to me is because they had truly received the gift of God's grace by faith in the gospel message of Jesus Christ. And as a result, well, the Lord was giving them a godly desire to support the saints there in the Holy Land. I think that John described this proof best in the third chapter of his first epistle. It's verses 16 and 17 where Paul, uh, John declares, By this we know love, because he laid down his life for us, and we also ought to lay our lives down for the brethren. But whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? Christian, listen, the the person who has truly been born again is going to develop a deep desire which leads us to become benevolent believers, and not because we have to give, not because we're required under the law to give, but because we've received the grace of God which results in the forgiveness of our sins, and, and, and from this grace... We just develop this desire that that leads us to want to give, to to want to be benevolent to those who are in need. It's an evidence of our conversion. Based on this, I believe that the person who has a desire to give their money at at a church like this one, uh, the, the person who begins to develop this desire to support their fellowship of faith like ours, I believe that this Christian is is simultaneously presenting the proof of their Christian conversion. In order to show you what I'm further saying, if you would hold your place here in 2 Corinthians and turn with me to Philippians chapter 4. As you make your way to Philippians 4, I want to take a moment to point out that the average unbeliever rarely, if ever, has any desire to give their money to support the work of a Christian ministry. Now, there are many in the world today who don't mind sending their money to some sort of charitable organization who promises to find a cure for this or feed the poor over there. And so I'm not suggesting that all unbelievers, you know, are are without generosity. I'm just suggesting to you that unbelievers rarely, if ever, want to give money in support of a Christian ministry or a church. And, And the same people are typically quick to mock the Christian who gives their money to a church. Where, where the Christian leaders are, are, are desiring to use that money to, to give benevolence to, to those who are in need. I remember as a new believer, you know, having my friends mock me as I started talking about offerings and, and giving to the church where I was attending. And, 
It was like, why would you give money to a church? It was ridiculed. And the reason why I wanted to give money at my church is because the Lord had saved me, and he began to give me a passion and a desire to support the work of the ministry. That being the case, it seems to me that the person who has a passion to support the work of God with financial gifts of grace, they're actually demonstrating the sacrificial love of the Lord, which is evidence of their salvation, which Paul, here in our text, refers to the proof of the ministry. I want to consider how Paul put it, though, here in his letter to the Christians there in Philippi. If you would look with me there at Philippians chapter 4, we'll begin reading at verse 15. Here Paul declares, Now you Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church shared with me concerning giving and receiving, but only you. For even in Thessalonica you sent aid once and again for my necessities. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that abounds to your account. Indeed, I have all and abound. I am full, having received from Epaphrodites the things sent from you, a sweet-smelling aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. And my God shall supply all your need according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. Now to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Now here in these verses we find Paul, he's commending the Christians there at the church in Philippi because they had this passion to support his mission's ministry with these financial gifts. And he commended them for the way in which they provided him with the financial aid that he needed so that he could continue reaching into the Gentile world. And as we consider the encouraging words of Paul here, we can see that Paul attributed their benevolent desire to send him financial support, he he calls it a sweet-smelling sacrifice, which they were willing to make because they were born-again believers who were dedicated to pleasing their Savior. He tells them there that that they are desiring to be well-pleasing to God, which is evidence of their faith. And from this, I would argue that the desire which would lead us to support the work of the ministry by engaging in this sort of grace-giving, which we find spelled out here in our text tonight, it's actually evidence that our hearts have truly been changed by the one who has provided us with the free gift of his grace. And so if you've truly received the free gift of grace by faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ, then it only stands to reason that you're also going to be filled with an attitude of gratitude, which leads us to not only give thanks unto God, but it will also lead us to become benevolent believers who are happy to give what we can in order to accomplish the work of God. Rather than grumbling about the money that we have to give in order to be good Christians, rather than giving out of some sort of grudging obligation or from some sort of legalism. I believe that the the true Christian will instead have an attitude of gratitude, which leads us to praise the Lord as we give our money. It leads us to, to praise the Lord as we put together gifts of benevolence here at this church. And just like Paul, I believe that the benevolent Christian will declare thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you.